Hello everyone, and welcome back to MIR Meets. Chloe Valdery is the head of the Theory of Enchantment, a conflict resolution program that describes itself as a framework for compassionate anti-racism. It combines a wide variety of written and visual media to help its participants better understand themselves and where they fit into society at large. In this episode, I've sat down with her to discuss the theory of enchantment, how it differs from other comparable initiatives, what it aims to accomplish, and the pop culture that she draws inspiration from for her program. Hope you enjoy. Chloe Valdery, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. My pleasure. All right, so I'm going to begin with probably the most basic question. Could you explain what DEI is and what it hopes to achieve? Um, well, DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Broadly speaking, that's an anti-racism sort of set of trainings that are introduced into the corporate world, introduced into nonprofit spaces in an attempt to create a better society, um, a society where people are not uh, mistreated because of skin color or any other sort of immutable characteristic they may have. Broadly speaking, that's what DEI is about. Different people have different ideas about how to actually achieve that um, end goal, but broadly speaking, that's what it's about. Yeah, and you've been uh, pretty outspoken on some of the criticisms that you have with the current sort of like default DEI framework that is often pursued. So would you mind elaborating on some of your criticisms? Uh, I can try. I think that in 2020, two of the main, um, I don't know if arbiters is the right word, but I'll go with that. Two of the main arbiters of uh, DEI were Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo. Their books, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist and White Fragility, respectively, were sort of hot on the market. This followed after the murder of George Floyd and subsequent rise in protests uh, that were spurred by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and so these two individuals wrote particular books arguing on the one hand that in Abram Kendi's case, um, in order to sort of overcome discrimination, you have to discriminate uh, in an anti-racist way. Um, and in Robin D'Angelo's case, arguing that white people are by definition, by default, fragile. They can't sort of handle a conversation on race. And if they uh, disagree with anything that a black person says uh, about race, then they are demonstrating their fragility, uh, which they have inexorably as a white person. And my critique of, I guess, Kendi's model is it, it's rooted in this idea that if we want to achieve equality, we have to recognize where supremacist tendencies come from in the first place. And they come from, from my perspective, they come from like an overcompensation uh, for our own insecurities. And so instead of responding to discrimination with further discrimination, we actually have to do the much harder work of getting integrated as individuals of getting in right relationship with our complexities and that will in turn affect the policies that we create 
so Kennedy was sort of speaking on a policy level, um, whereas I'm speaking on a psychological level, but I think that the psychological level informs the policies that we create as a society. And my critique to Robin DiAngelo is that she's still caricaturing and stereotyping people based upon skin color, uh, which is precisely what we are trying to stop doing. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Um, and you've often repeated uh, many times, for, for example, in your guest appearance on The Good Fight with Yasha Monk, that bigotry and prejudice are often a product of insecurity. So I guess I have uh, two questions from that. One is, would you mind elaborating on the way that they're formed from insecurity? And my second question is, do you think insecurity has the potential to beget insecurity? Like, for example, if my insecurity causes me to become bigoted against other people, do you think that those other people might end up becoming insecure as well as a result of my own prejudice? So I'll try to answer the second question first. Um yes it's like we as human beings we imitate each other and so if i am not in a loving environment where i am getting feedback that my life is worthy or that i have a sense of self-worth and i'm being bombarded by other people who are also deeply insecure then the likelihood that i will internalize their insecurity is pretty high, I think. Um, one of the beauties of the civil rights movement was that it took place, you know, it was really sort of, I think, spearheaded in the South to, to a large degree. And African-American culture in the South, despite its uh, being persecuted by Jim Crow laws and um, the very legalistic framework of uh, you know, just disenfranchisement, despite that being a factor, there was another factor that was sort of contrary to that, which was the strength of the sense of self-worth that actually existed within the African-American community. And that is what gave people the sense to fight for their rights in the first place. If you don't feel like you have a sense of worthiness, then you're not going to fight for things because you won't believe that you're entitled to them in the first place, right? So there has to be some kind of like sense of self-worth that is cultivated in the community that you're living in. Otherwise, you will be likely to internalize that insecurity that other people are sort of uh, pushing onto you. And then in terms of your first question, how does it work? If I am feeling secure within myself, I won't feel the need to tear other people down in order to feel good about myself. Right. Um, and so that's why I say it comes from a sense of insecurity for which I am overcompensating. Like if I'm think if I'm content in my being, if I'm, you know, chill in who I am and with who I am, I won't feel the need to sort of do this external outward attack on someone else. Because the reason why I'm doing that is so I can feel secure. Right. And so if you trace it back, that's what I mean when I say it's it's insecurity at the heart of it. And so supremacy is a um, it's a kind of a facade in the sense that the supremacist who projects that sort of uh, persona, if you peel back the mask, what's actually behind it is a deep sense of worthlessness uh, that has to be addressed. 
Yeah. So the goal is to get to the point where you don't feel like you need to like attack these things or sort of constantly um, put others down in that way. That mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was one quote that you wrote that I thought was kind of interesting. So I'm going to quote it right now. Okay. Um, it is the African-American tradition to use soul power to wage a war of unconditional love against hatred, discord, and bigotry. This is my birthright. If you are an American, regardless of where you come from, it is your birthright too. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. So there's one aspect of that that I would like to push on a little bit. Do you think that there are times throughout history where like when it comes to African-Americans waging wars against like waging wars of love against bigotry, mm -hmm. would you consider it reasonable to say that there are often times where like they try to do that and they try to like wage war against bigotry with love, but like their attempts at like being conciliatory were still treated as hostile provocation anyway, because they wouldn't, they couldn't successfully get through to the people on top, the people in power who still had that insecurity that they themselves didn't want to address. Yes, to answer your question, there's no guarantee that if you pick up the strategy that I am suggesting that people will conform to your vision of society. You know, Dr. King was very unpopular when he was alive. Um, but I personally would rather be uh, content internally and um, magnanimous internally and not hateful because I think hatefulness is its own kind of prison. So I personally would rather commit to the practice of love rather than become imprisoned by a framework of hate because regardless of whether or not it works, being um, uh, driven by hatred is still a form of slavery. <laughs> so yeah. sort of separating it out from the outcome um, on one level, right? Because there's many outcomes, right? Like on one level, um, you could imagine a situation where societally the people on top don't concede anything, um, and uh, continue to perpetuate injustice. And you could say in that context, well, you waged war with love and it didn't work or didn't work with as much impact as you thought it would have, and so you lost. I think that's a societal uh, level analysis and that's, that's a fair analysis, it's not, it's not that it's not true. But I think that on another level, or and at the same time on another level, um, the person or the group of people who are choosing to show up in the world in such a way that they're not clinging to the need to hate their fellow man in order to have a sense of inner security are free in a way that the person who, or the group of people who are persecuting them are not. Um, and it, it requires a level of analysis that's beyond, that goes beyond the purely materialistic analysis to to get to that to arrive at that point and to arrive at that conclusion yeah so like when it comes to waging war against bigotry with love it might not help on a societal level it might not do enough on a macro level but you should still do it because it's good for your soul 
essentially and i do ultimately think that if everyone was doing it it would change the society but that's <laughs> or like if if even like 15 percent of of people in the world were doing it i i'm pretty sure it would change society um 15 is very large yeah <laughs> yeah uh that's a lot of people and again as human beings we imitate each other so who can say for sure how that would transform society i don't want to like say that it's a lost cause but i don't think that, that has ever been a popular thing that has been taken up by quote-unquote the masses as a practice yeah but do you do you ever think that like some of that might be like present in the present day like there are some times where like do you think that there are still times in the present where someone might try to like wage war against bigotry with love but is still like slapped away and treated as hostile by people in power that are insecure yeah i mean i'm sure that happens all the time we see i mean i'm seeing sort of inner wars happening on the right for example in, in, in right-wing political spaces where you have someone who's conservative and um you know doesn't adhere to the sort of ideology of donald trump and is very much like character matters and they will be critiqued and really um uh like very nastily critiqued by people who will essentially advance the position that the only thing that matters is power like, yeah. the only thing that matters is getting control of the government and who cares about character so yeah i think i, I certainly see that in that particular context and i think that's an that's a natural thing that happens in human affairs, not just in the political landscape. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, pop culture sure. um, because you're like, so I guess first question, just uh, as explanation, could you elaborate a little bit on how like your theory of enchantment often tries to use pop culture to like see, like allow people to see themselves in it? Yeah, so we use pop culture as a as like source material to help people embody the three principles of the theory of enchantment, which are treat people like human beings, not political abstractions, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy, and then try to root everything you do in, in love and compassion. So we might deploy pop culture as a way to get people to start really understanding what we mean by treat people like human beings. So like, we'll say like, what does it mean to be a human being in the first place? And then we might look at hip hop as a canon and we might look at, you know, Kendrick Lamar when he says, I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA as a, as a meditation on what it means to be a human being. And as an invitation to the participants in our workshops to ask themselves what it means to be human. Um, we might sort of use, um, trying to think of something to reference for the second principle, uh, I mean, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy, sort of based on this insight that like a lot of supremacist ideas or ways of being come from that insecurity. So you don't want to respond to the insecurity by making a person feel even more insecure because it, if you tear them down in that way, it actually might feel the thing you want to undermine. And a pop culture reference, I think that's really encapsulating that idea is this uh the song take care by drake and rihanna where rihanna says um i know you've been hurt by someone else i can tell by the way you carry yourself right there's that insight to look 
beyond what's being expressed outwardly and to see what's motivating that behavior behind it. Um, so yeah, we use, we try to use pop culture to, to show people that the reason why they gravitate toward pop culture in the first place is because pop culture often reveals something to us about what it means to be alive, what it means to be human. Um, and so we want to invite people to like, not look at it passively and not just merely as, you know, forms of entertainment, but a canon that can teach us about how to navigate life and build a good society. Yeah, I think people often underestimate just how influential pop culture is in shaping mm -hmm. our own worldview. Um, but to what extent do you think that like pop culture has the potential to like tear people down and make people feel lesser? I mean, it's like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, I love that movie. Highly recommend it for those of you who haven't seen it. But it's like, yeah, every it's like everything contains everything, <laughs> which is actually a part of the first principle. It's like, what does it mean to be a human being? It's complex, right? Um, I have things about myself that I would like to work on, right? There are things yeah. about myself that are that I think are also positive attributes. As it is true for me, it's true for pop culture, right? Uh, on an even greater scale. So like take Nike, for example. Nike is, I, I think, a company whose ethos speaks to something deep and um, abiding about the human condition. We sort of like want to always overcome the obstacles in front of us. Uh, and Nike, this idea of like, just do it is like, like telling us that we can overcome if with, with work and stamina and all these things with resilience, we can just do it and overcome the obstacles that we have in front of us. At the same time, Nike is like a, the, the ethos became so popular and so ubiquitous around the globe that it can sort of bleed into sort of hyper-materialistic uh, experience of identity where your identity becomes dependent upon like how many tennis shoes do you own right how many air jordan pairs do you own and so there's always that that yin and yang that's a part of the yeah. fabric of reality itself and that's inescapable yeah it's like that that dichotomy of good and bad is yeah. very hard to avoid um that's but it's impossible to avoid because yeah. <laughs> the one depends upon the other yeah but like does that ever mean that like maybe there's like a small possibility that some of the pop culture that you try to endorse in your own program, it might have a lot of good, but it might still have some remnants of problematic aspects in other areas where like some pop culture, like it can simultaneously be uplifting and like tearing people down at the same time where it contains some aspects that have very positive influences and some aspects that might be negative. Yeah, I mean, one of the first practices we tell people to do in our workshops is a who am I practice where they ask themselves, who am I? And for everything they, that comes to them, they say, we tell them to say thank you, to express gratitude, and we tell them to include the things that they don't like about themselves um, so that they can get used to that, again, complexity. Um, so yeah, I think that every piece of, culture if it is real contains elements of what we would call good and bad by definition yeah so maybe the, the approach is to like be more discerning like 
the the good aspects of the pop culture you should let it seep into you and affect you but like be on the lookout to make sure that you don't accidentally absorb the problematic messaging at the same time well i would say so i theory of enchantment is highly influenced by carl jung and the whole jungian approach to the shadow um which would be I think mistakenly reduced to the bad. The shadow is just like the things we're unconscious of that are part of ourselves. Um, could be good or bad. But Jung would say not to sort of like suppress the bad or suppress the shadow, but to get in right relationship, develop the right relationship with the shadow. So great example is like, if I know that in my shadow, I have this like desire to be violent it's not going to work if I try to suppress my desire to be violent. What needs to happen is I need to channel my desire to be violent in a neutral to positive container, right? I need to oh, like redirect the inertia into exactly. a different direction. I, I need to like take up a martial art, right? Like I need to actually, um, I don't know if you like Avatar The Last Airbender, but like <laughs> I need to like waterbend essentially. So it's more yeah. like that as opposed to like trying to suppress the negative energy, because if you suppress it, it's going to just going to come out in other ways. Yeah. Like find, find some positive outlet for it, like martial arts yeah. or like, if you could learn magic, that would also be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to touch on one more thing, which is that like on Twitter, I think that um, you often make comparisons between different groups of people like one group might be considered like woke and another yeah. group might be considered like reactionary yeah. um for example i think there was one time where you tried to like connect donald trump's ideology with uh, critical race theory uh, something along Probably. those lines yeah yeah could you um could you elaborate on the way that you see those two things as like being two sides of the same coin um well I can say that like when you hear today, like today, these days, I hear many people on the right being like, the only thing that matters is power. <laughs> um, character doesn't really matter. Uh, we just have to take back control of the Senate. Yeah. Um, that sort of argumentation is the very thing that those same people on the right will criticize folks who believe in critical race theory um, for. So there is this uh, byproduct of counter-dependency, which is when you make your identity dependent upon countering another person, you, if you're not careful, you can start to imitate a person that you're becoming counter to. Um, and I think that we're seeing that right now. There's a, there's a way in which it works sort of like in reverse also, or in a different dimension. I don't know if you want me to get into that, but there's like a more positive element or positive thread that I have seen uh, in observing these different cultural forces, but... Well, let, let's hear Let's hear the positive thread. <laughs> okay, so you know how folks in anti-racist spaces will might say something like, the written word is racist? Um, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, and then, like, the right will be like, you're terrible, whatever. Um, yeah. if I, again, because this is all about like peering behind the facade or whatever, I can 
take the argument that the that folks on the woke whatever are saying about the written word and if i tease it out what i think they're trying to say is actually something that socrates said about the written word which is that it's like the written word it can't you know it's concretized it's not like us having a conversation right now it's obviously useful for spreading information in highly complex you know uh societies that are ruled by bureaucracies because that's how you spread information but the written word does not actually is limited in its capacity to um convey a sort of vitality and aliveness that can only be conveyed in the sort of oral conversational tradition that characterized let's say early ancient greek society for such a long time if you look at the so-called canon of the West, right? And this is so funny to me because people on the right will like bring this argument to, and they'll be like, we need to promote the West. And it's like, well, the West has an oral tradition, right? Like Homer's The Odyssey was originally like acted out, you know, and embodied. And I think that there's something to be said about, about what perhaps some who consider themselves woke are trying but failing to articulate and something that's actually deeply valued in our society that we've sort of lost, which is how do we actually become an embodied society? Um, so I don't know. I, I think that's a through line that could actually help unite the right and the left on this issue, but we sort of get sidetracked and distracted by other things going on. So, yeah. But then that sort of gets me thinking like those attempts to, take like the the low um the the bottom of the barrel in terms of the right and comparing them with like the excesses of the left do you think that like trying to say that like they're like trying to negatively say that they both have a lot of things in common do you think that might cause people to miss out on some of the positive aspects of what um, for example, when you when you were talking about like the ideology that anti-racists often espouse, do you think that that might actually have a lot of like good and thoughtful points made? It's just that since it's articulated in like a messy way, yeah. it sort of gets dismissed. So yes and no. There's there are uh, certainly groups who identify as like woke, who haven't thought this through, who will just like flippantly say that the word, the written word is whiteness and therefore needs to be dismantled. And it, like, there's no like thought in, in that at all. Um, and then there's sort of like this lineage of this philosophical lineage that can be traced back from that statement. And you can sort of pick up pieces of like, oh, we're talking about the importance of the oral tradition, embodiment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I would say like, I would split the difference between what I'm saying and what you're saying. But yeah, it's like easily easy to dismiss what your op opponent is saying if your identity is like dependent upon defeating them. And this is actually where Nike can become like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the other side of Nike, right? Because Nike means victory. It's like the goddess of victory, right? But if your entire framework is my identity is dependent upon getting victory over my opponent, then that can become parasitic, actually. Yeah. You know? And it, so, and that's also bad for your own soul and might end yeah. up 
reinforcing your own insecurities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I'm reading this, I'm studying like, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but I'm studying uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, which is just like blowing my mind and has a lot to say about this. So about like how we constantly grasp for reference points to validate our existence um, and how really like the ultimate security is insecurity. Like everything is alive and present and, and spontaneous in this moment right now. And we forget that. Um, and in doing so, we become more liable to, like, um, I don't know, from, like, become pathological in our relationship with insecurity. Yeah. All right. Chloe Baldry, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great, um, great light note to end on. Yes. Yeah, very, very light. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. This was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.